Yo, 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 what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the podcast called Getting to Know God. This is the place where we look to the scriptures and only the scriptures to know the one true living God of the Bible, letting him speak for himself in his word through the Psalms. I'm Brandon, also known as Pastor B-Side, and today we're going to look at the attributes of God as the Lord describes them in Psalm 2. The title for our study today is called Authority. Ooh, gotta love that. But real quick, before we get started, I wanted to remind you that if you've been digging on these studies or the things we do as a ministry, please hit the like button, the share button, and make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast. I know it sounds silly, but it really helps make sure that this teaching can be more easily found for folks who need it. The more action and activity that social media sees, the more likely it is to recommend it to other people. And at the end of it all, it really helps us bring glory to the Lord. Amen. So enough of that. Let's check these verses. In Psalm 2, the Bible says this. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. All right, so since the beginning of time, people have often struggled with authority, right, across the board. As people, we don't really like being told what to do. We don't like rules. We don't like restrictions. Most people have personal goals and often find certain kinds of authority as like oppressive and restrictive towards those goals, right? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that's kind of how it is. Now, the testimony of scripture begins with the simple words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we might not think much of it in, you know, its own place, but that statement means that God was first, and everything that is made was made by him and for him. That means that he's in charge. Days are the length that they are because God made it that way. People are in the positions that they're in because God made it that way. So our personal ambitions, our desires and preferences, they, they can't affect our opinion of God himself. He, he's in charge, and that's true, whether we think it's helpful to our personal cause or not, and we can't change it. We can't let our personal ambitions confuse the truth about God's sovereignty, which refers to his supreme control over all things at all times. His standards are above ours, like it or not. His ways are in higher priority than our ambitions and our wants. When God proclaimed his righteousness through the law, and then he gave that to Moses, he began by saying this, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. So he's the one that reached out to us to provide benefits that we couldn't gain for ourselves otherwise. He's the one that delivers us from bondage and darkness. He's the one that took it upon himself to offer blessings of all kinds according to his grace and goodness. So it's fitting that we as his people keep from putting anything before him, in front of him, right? Despising his authority and his purposes. Regardless of what we think of authority, the testimony of Psalm 2 makes it very clear that God doesn't play around with this issue. The people who despise his authority are going to be dealt with in the worst way, and God has already revealed his plans to address this very issue. So let's rewind for a second. Psalm 2 began by asking a simple question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? So here God asks a good question. Why do people fight against him? Why, right? Why do people fight against God? Why do people despise the supremacy of his goodness and his authority? Why do people band together, even as nations, as communities, and as groups of all kinds, to rebel against God's authority and his righteous standards? Since the beginning, the Bible shows that people have tried to take authority from God, making up our own rules to do what we want instead of what he said. Since the beginning, people have wanted to do what we desire instead of what God said is right and good. In Genesis chapter 11, the Bible testifies that people like the nations, right, banded together, unifying against God's command to fill the world, multiply, and subdue it according to his measure of what he said is good. They didn't like what God said. They wanted to do their own thing, and they tried to build themselves up. They essentially tried to build their own way into their own version of heaven, Right? They built what we know now as the Tower of Babel, which was a pretty glaring sign of their rebellion <laughs> against God, right? When you got a huge, like, physical structure to show your attempt to build your own way into heaven, uh, I think it's a pretty glaring sign of what's going on there, right? They figured that they could do whatever they wanted, living however they wanted, and actually get away with it. The Bible even says that the people at that time were able to do just about anything that they put their minds to. But that didn't really work in their favor, did it? Did, did the Tower of Babel reach into heaven like they planned? Did the people overthrow God, right? Did the people's quest for independence from God's authority actually succeed? Did the people get what they wanted without consequence? No, I mean, as a result of that, stuff is all jacked up these days, right? So in Psalm 2, God acknowledges two things about rebellion. First, rebellion is by the majority, not the minority. The text says that it's the nations of the world that band together against God. It's peoples, referring to communities and groups that form together against him. So these groups form on account of the leadership of kings and rulers and governors that take counsel with each other, consciously conspiring ways to offend God and rebel against him in all kinds of creative ways, right? Verse 2 goes on to say this about the leaders of the world. The kings of the earth have set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So the world hates that God is in control, and that's pretty obvious if you're paying attention to anything real today. 
The world hates that God is sovereign. And again, that refers to his supreme control of everything. Deep down, none of us are really comfortable with the idea that our personal ambitions and desires are ultimately governed by someone else, right? The Lord God Almighty. Either way, the second thing that God identifies is that this rebellion, no matter the size of the group, is a vain thing. Even though plans get more sophisticated and the groups get larger, it's still empty and worthless to rebel against God. For all the people throughout history that have rebelled against God, including the devil himself, the Lord has not budged an inch from his seat of authority, and he never will. Rebellion doesn't do anybody any good. Psalm 2 explains how the Lord is going to address this global rebellion. God the Father has appointed someone to handle the workload of executing his judgment in wrath. For all that the Bible says about God being loving and merciful, gracious, and patient, the Bible also says that this persistent rebellious attitude from the majority of people in the world is offensive to God, and it ticks him off. This attitude of rebellion is flat-out demonic in the eyes of the Lord, and he has sworn to pour out his wrath to address the issue when it comes time. Psalm 2 identifies the one that God appointed for this task and explained the way that he's going to judge when it's time. God the Father refers to one as his anointed. This is a reference to the Jewish Messiah, the Messiah King of Israel, is the one that the Father has appointed to judge the world because the rebellion of the nations and the people is against both the Father and his Messiah. God described the quality of rebellion that people express against him and the Messiah. It's, it's pretty clear. The attitudes of the people say things like the things that are written in verse 3. They say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So God sees the hearts of those who are against him and who are opposing him, right? God sees how many people hate his control. God sees when people try to build themselves up as if they can escape his power. But notice that those who rebel against God know that they are also rebelling against God's anointed. The Bible uses plural pronouns here to describe the subjects that the people rebel against, right? The targets of that rebellion. And it's not just one, it's multiple, right? The text is referring to both the Father and his anointed. Now, there's a lot of people who understand the authority of God and have heard about his anointed, but they don't like it. And so when they hear about it, they reject both the Father and his Son. That's who his anointed is. Still, God assures the world that he will have the last laugh. He literally says that here. God's response to this rebellion is documented in verse 4. It says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. So God looks at the rebellious hearts of his creation, and he mocks them. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter how many people form against him. He will speak his wrath to them without fear. The policies and the laws that are put into legislation and, and cultural practice, right? Those things don't phase the Lord. God has sworn to judge the people who do these things by bringing them to distress and deep displeasure. 
God will cause those who rebel against him to live with crazy anxiety and terror, even though they might think that they're actually making progress to remove God from this world. And there's a lot of people out there who actually think that. The desires that these people have won't produce the results that they think. In fact, it's going to be quite the opposite. The Bible explains that God has already set his king in position to execute the judgment that he's promising. In Psalm 2, verses 5 through 6, it plainly says, Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So here it's important to recognize that God the Father referred to his anointed as his own king, right? It's his king. The Messiah of Israel is also the king of Israel and is the one anointed by the Father to judge the nations of the world that rebel against him. We're learning a lot about the Messiah in Psalm 2, right? Psalm 2 explains that the Father has established his king on his own holy hill in Zion, which actually is a reference to Jerusalem. This means that God's judgments against the wicked of the world will come out of Jerusalem. God has issued a clear decree regarding this work of judgment and expression of his wrath. It's not a mystery, right? Here we are reading it in plain public sight. You can download whatever Bible app you want today in a whole bunch of languages, in a whole bunch of translations, and read essentially the exact same thing. People feel like since these things were said so long ago, and it seems like it's gone unfulfilled, that it's all a bunch of nonsense, right? Well, that's the very rebellion that God promises to address in his time. So verses 7 and 8 go on to say, The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So pay attention to the language of the Father's decree here. First, the text says that it's the Lord that began speaking. Okay, that's very important to pay attention to the order of things here. The original Hebrew word for Lord is the Hebrew title Yahweh, right? Yahweh, that's the creator of all things. And he spoke to another person referred to in the text as me. That's what it, say, and that's, that's what it says in the text, right? What this means is, is that Yahweh, referring to God the Father, made his declaration to the one identified as the Son of the Father. This means that the anointed Messiah King of Israel, the one who's going to judge the world from Jerusalem, here is also called the son of Yahweh, and he's called that by Yahweh's own declaration. But even though the language of the text can make it seem like the father gave birth to a son on like this particular day at a particular moment, that's not what the scriptures mean. So here the word son refers to the Messiah's relationship to the father as an heir, someone who receives an inheritance, H-E-I-R. The truth is made clear and that the text talks about the Son of God receiving an inheritance. That's how we know. Now, the quality of the inheritance that the Son receives describes the unique quality of the relationship between the Messiah and the Father. The scriptures show that the Father gave everything into the hands of the Messiah. So the Messiah has received the nations and the ends of the earth 
as his inheritance, which means that he must also receive the righteousness, the holiness, the justice, the wisdom, and the power of the Father in order to execute the Father's judgments to perfection over this ridiculous area, right? What area? The, the whole world. <laughs> in other words, the Son of God has all of the attributes of the Father in order to execute the judgments of the Father against those who are rebelling against the authority of the Father. This teaches that the Messiah King of Israel is also the Son of God, which means that he is God in flesh. That's what the text is teaching us. The Father appointed his Son to judge all people who rebel against his authority, trying to live their own way instead of God's way. The only person in history who fits this description is none other than Jesus Christ. This means that while Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is also the one appointed by the Father to judge the world that opposes him as the Messiah King of Israel. And he will do so, seated in Jerusalem as the King of Kings, as God in flesh, when all is said and done. The Father promised that the Son will rule the ends of the earth and break those who rebel against him, like with a rod of iron. In fact, that's exactly what it says. In verse 9, it says it this way, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So God's wrath is no joke. Jesus is going to pour it out in such a way that the text says he will dash his enemy into pieces. All of the people that gather together to live separated from God's control and authority will be dealt with in time. All of the effort that people have put into trying to remove God from life, it's going to be worthless when Jesus comes and shatters them like a clay pot being thrown to the ground. Now, thankfully, Psalm 2 also gives us instructions on how to escape the terrible wrath of God that will be administrated by Jesus on a particular day and time. God speaks about his salvation in verses 10 through 12. So here's what it says. It says, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Now God pleads with the authorities, you know, people of influence in the world, to be wise. Like he's asking them, almost begging them, to be smart, right? To listen up. God calls for people to stop being foolish and live according to real wisdom, his wisdom. Now in Psalm 14, verse 1, the Bible says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now when you look at Psalm 14, 1 in your Bible, you might notice that the phrase, there is, is actually placed in brackets. Now, that signifies that those words are actually not in the original manuscripts of the Bible. They were added to try and help us understand the meaning. But in this particular case, it actually weakens the point a little bit. The text should be more accurately translated, the fool has said in his heart, no God. Now, when we look at the text in its original form, it's teaching us that a fool is a person that rebels against God. The fools are the ones who despise God's existence, his goodness, and his authority. The fool is the one that says no to God, right? So the wise person is the one who repents of this natural desire to rebel against God and actually submits to God's control, authority, and righteousness. 
God described the temperament of this wisdom. He instructs us to serve him with fear. Since Jesus will judge the violent way that scriptures say, it's a scary thing to imagine what it's going to be like to get hit with God's wrath, right? I don't think anybody really wants that if we actually believe that it's true. So rather than fight against God, plotting worthless things, God says to live according to his wisdom, which is serving him in fear, being genuinely afraid of the consequences of his judgments if we continue in rebellion. Now, God also says to rejoice with trembling. It's wise to rejoice over the revelation of God that he's given concerning his judgments, because if we didn't know about them, we would just be the victims of them. (laughs) That wouldn't be good, right? We should rejoice that the revelation of the judge is also a revelation of the Savior, since he's the only one with the authority to remove us from the judgment that he's going to administrate. We should rejoice that even though we are all guilty of offending God, rebelling against him and his purposes constantly, God has shown incredible mercy and restraint and has not judged us yet, right? He hasn't treated us, any of us, the way that we actually deserve. Instead, God has provided a way of escape from the eternal consequences of our rebellion because he's gracious. God commands the people who want to be wise, right? The people who actually hear what he's saying and are like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. We're supposed to kiss the son. Now, this phrase means to honor the one that he's appointed as Messiah, as you know, the king of Israel, as ruler, as the judge. Why? Well, Jesus is God in flesh. He is well qualified to do the things that he's promised to do here in the scriptures. If we anger him, that's equal to angering the almighty creator of all things. That's bad news. To anger the almighty and reject his offer of forgiveness can't result in anything good, right? So God simply says this in the end, blessed are those who put their trust in him. So those who are blessed are those who submit to God's control, his authority, power, wisdom, and his supremely righteous standards. Those who are blessed, we don't contend with God anymore, right? At least not purposefully. We don't doubt him, despise him, or reject him. We shouldn't argue with God, right? We shouldn't be making demands of God as if our perspective is wiser than his and we know better for ourselves than he does. He's not interested in our opinions or suggestions. So we shouldn't act like we know better. That's rebellion. Those who desire to live independent of God, independent of his word, and separated from his righteousness, they're going to suffer consequences when the time comes for Jesus to administrate those consequences. And best believe that that time is coming very soon. Those who are truly blessed are those who are saved from God's wrath, spared from his anger, and preserved from these judgments that we're talking about, you know, that comes from a rod of iron and smashed up like clay, right? Because there's humble submission, dependency, and faith in God's authority that comes through Jesus and the Word. So that's what the Bible teaches about the one we know as God. But before I get out of here, I just wanted to give you a quick reminder to please take a second and make sure that you're subscribed, make sure you share the link to this podcast on your social media, and make sure you're letting people know about what's going on through these studies. We need all the people we can to know the truth about God and the hope that he wants to give, right? He said he's going to judge and he's going to do that, but he's provided a way of escape. We don't want to keep the people we know from hearing the truth and hope they may need, right? Maybe they're in rebellion against God right now and need to be warned about the coming judgment through a message like this 
to repent and be saved from it. So go ahead and share, go ahead and like, do the do, right? And also keep in mind that all the Bible teaching I do here is 100% listener supported. What this means is that I depend on listeners like you to pay the bills for the tools that makes this stuff available to you, as well as pay for all the time that it takes to study the word and prepare to this degree. Not a lot of this happening these days, right? If this podcast is helpful to you and you value this sort of teaching and dig on, you know, the beats and kind of the presentation that we give, please prayerfully consider sending a donation this way. We're a legit nonprofit. We are a legal 501c3 operating through our parent ministry, which is called Proper Knowledge Ministries. Feel free to check us out. If you'd like to partner with the work of the gospel that we're doing here, you can visit www.pastorbside.com. That's pastor, B, like the letter B, side, like the flip side of a record, dot com. Hit the support tab on the website and give any amount that you're able as the Lord leads. Every bit helps. And I'm not just saying that. And if the Lord would lead you, maybe even consider partnering monthly with us, making your gift recurring, kind of like tithing to a church, because church is founded on the true teaching of the Bible, and that's exactly what we do here. Ministries like this need support just like any other. For all the false teaching being shared out there, let's partner together and make a strong effort to get more good teaching out there. Not here, at least somewhere else, right? So thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the study. Hope you dig the beat in the background. And until next time, peace out.